Okay. So do you know any children? <laughs> no? Did you say no? Yes. Are you guys children? Oh. Okay, let's, let's try this question. Is there anything good about being a child? What's good about being a child? What? Play. You can play as a child? Can we, can we play? Okay, some of you are in a lot of trouble. Yeah, we can play too. You think play is just for you? <laughs> yes. Okay, so as a child, you can play. You have a lot more time to play than adults do. Yeah, that's a good thing. Okay, what else is good about being a child? You get candy at church. You get candy. <laughs> I think there's something. Because <laughs> you see Oreos in there. Okay, so you get candy at church. You know, that would be called bribery in some states, but we're not going <laughs> to say anything about that. Um, okay, what else is good about being a child? You don't have to do all the work. You don't have to do all the work, do you? You don't have to, you don't have to, work, you don't have to work for your mom because you're too little. Because you're too little. <laughs> I would change that policy in your house if I were you guys. Okay, okay. So there's a lot of really good things about being a kid, right? Are there anything, is there anything bad about being a kid? Is there any negatives about being a kid? What's a negative about being a kid? I don't know. <laughs> you don't know? What's a negative about being a kid? Oh, so you're smaller. You get picked on a lot. Does your dad pick on you? Oh, your uncle does. <laughs> your uncle. I need to meet your uncle. He sounds like a good guy. Um, okay, so you're smaller. You get picked on a lot. What else is not very good about being a kid? What are the other downsides? Are there any other downsides? Okay, so let me ask. Let's, let's try this in a different direction. So I have a container of Oreos here. Woohoo! All right. And these are the double stuff. These aren't those thins that they came out with. That I don't even understand what those are supposed to be. These are double stuff. That means there's extra cream in the middle. Now, as an ad let's ask this. As a kid, if I were to open this up, oh, and I just gave that to you, could you eat that entire package of Oreos? Okay, who thinks they could eat that entire package of Oreos? Oh, all right. That, that's really true, okay? As an adult, you know, I can go to the store and I can buy these, and I could technically eat all of those cookies. No, you're going to get sick. But I would get sick. How, anybody ever tried to eat an entire package of Oreo cookies? <laughs> There's a lot of children in this sanctuary right now. I just have to say that. Here's the deal. When you grow up, you realize, you know what? If I sat down with this entire package of Oreos and a giant jug of milk and I ate the whole thing, I would get sick. As kids, I don't know that we always think quite that way. We just eat the whole package and then we get sick. 
we go, oopsie, yeah, as you're laying in the bathroom saying, why did I do this? And then what do you do? You call for your mom or your dad, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this might sound silly and everything, but the message we're going to talk about today, Paul is going to say to the church in Corinth, I need you guys to grow up, okay? Because you're acting really childish. There is something about what they're doing that isn't fun, it's not good, it's not the, that part of being a child that really excites us. Something they're doing is going to be like eating an entire package of cookies. It's going to make them sick and they don't know it yet. And so Paul's saying, I need you to stop. I need you guys to grow up and to think about this differently. Being a kid's great, and we, you know what? Do you see my kids? They're sitting over there. They go back to school today. They can't wait to grow up. But to be honest, the good parts of being a kid, you got to hold on to those because they're really, really good. Let me pray for us. Should we share these cookies, you think? Yeah. I'm going to give you guys a cookie, and I'm going to send you guys back to your seat, all right? Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts, Lord, not that they would just be appropriate to you, but that they would be dedicated to you, that everything we think and we are, that it would all have you in mind. For you alone are both our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right. Who wants a cookie? You guys don't really want these, do you? Oh, no. All right. Grab a cookie. All right. You're going to take one for Xander, too? Okay. No, you take one because she took one for Xander. Thank you. All right. Oreo cookies. Don't you guys wish you were kids? Huh? <laughs> All righty. Yeah, play, toys, Christmas. That's what I still want. Okay. So here's the deal. We are studying Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Letters are kind of interesting, aren't they, if you think about it, because they are meant to be read all at once. Have you ever received a letter from someone only to sit down and just read a part of it? Nick and I used to write letters back and forth to each other. When we were in love, before we got married. <laughs> no, just kidding. We're still in love. We're still married. Um, anyway, I was at Penn State, and I was finishing up the longest possible undergraduate degree in the history of higher education. And Nick was staying with her parents as she was planning the wedding. And so what we did was we wrote letters back and forth to each other. Well, there was this one evening, and I had called Nick, and her mom answers the phone. And what she says is, that was so beautiful, which left me kind of scratching my head because I was like, what was beautiful? It didn't make any sense to me. And then Nick gets on the phone and explains to me that she had let her mom read the letter I had just sent her. You know, I didn't quite know what to do with that one. Some letters I thought were private. 
and not to be shared publicly. And then there are letters like Corinthians that Paul meant to be public letters. But again, do we ever just read a part of a letter and then come back to it and read another part of the letter? Do we ever take months and months to read a letter? You know, it seems that when we study Scripture, that's how we do it. We take it slowly and we do it piece by piece because sometimes, oftentimes, there is so much in there that we really want to take the time to unpack that. 1 Corinthians is going to be a long letter. We're going to take a few months here to kind of get through it, and we've got a lot to cover this morning. So let's go ahead and jump in. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We will begin reading with verse 10. You can find it on page 869 in your pew Bibles. I have a question for you all. Does anybody have a pew Bible that it's not on page 869? We have a variant in the sanctuary, and sometimes people are a little confused. No? Okay. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels. We have Acts, and then we have Romans and 1 Corinthians. That's the order coming in to the New Testament. So verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. The first problem Paul will choose to address is the problem of division. It's going to be the focus for the first four chapters of Corinthians. Verse 11, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Now, I want to stop here because we actually need to, we need to kind of get a handle on what Paul's talking about. Paul's not talking about disagreements here. He's not talking about, do you prefer Folgers or happy mug coffee on Sunday morning? Paul uses a word in the Greek that shows up only a handful of times in the New Testament. And when it does, it typically shows up in these lists of sins that Paul likes. So, for example, in Romans 1.29, it will say, they have become filled with Every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife. Strife is the word here for division. Strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips. The division or quarreling or strife that they are experiencing, Paul is going to say this is a serious issue. It is tearing apart the community, and consequently, it is destroying your witness as a church. You know, I don't know that we take seriously just how bad division in the church can be. I mean, how many of you have experienced a church that has gone through division? There's a handful of you. It's bad. There was this moment when I was sharing the gospel with a friend of mine. He was Muslim. And what he said to me is, Mike, I, I can't get past the number of denominations in Christianity today. The amount of division that is in the church. There is this interesting moment in the Gospel of John 
When Jesus is about to go to the cross, this is just before his death. And John records for us this prayer that Jesus prayed. Jesus will ask the Father for protection for the disciples in his absence so that they may be one as we are one. There is something about a unified church that God had intended since the beginning. There is something really, really important about a church who is unified in their witness to the world. And so for that reason, I think Paul is going to get fairly worked up over this division in the church in Corinth. And so what he's going to say to them is, you know what? It is time for you to grow up. It's time for you to mature in Christ. So here's the issue that they were divided over, verse 12. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I will follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. I love Paul's afterthought here. Can't you see Paul asking Sosthenes, you know, where is that stupid eraser? I totally forgot about the household of Stephanas here. Like, what was, you never need an eraser when you, you never have an eraser when you need one. But he goes on, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of wisdom or eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Okay, pause. So here's the situation with the church in Corinth. There are groupies forming in the church. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, who is actually Peter. And he's likely the one that we read about throughout the Gospels. You know, this sounds like one of those times when you were in a child and you were in a disagreement with another kid and you threw down what you thought was that showstopper of the argument when you said, you know, my dad could beat up your dad. That was supposed to be the end of the conversation, wasn't it? Paul is saying to those in the church in Corinth, grow up. This isn't about whose dad can beat up whose dad. There is only one that we follow. Only one whose name that we were baptized into, and that is Christ Jesus. He will go so far as to say, you know, when I preached the gospel, I didn't do it with wisdom or eloquence because I did not want to distract from the power of the cross. I didn't want you paying any attention to me. Remember this. If you feel like my sermon... (laughs) is a little flat someday. It's not about me. It's about the power of the cross. In reality, I'm concerned about those things. I'm concerned that my sermons do fall flat sometimes because I want to be a good preacher. There's this part of me that it is about me. Paul is saying to us, the gospel has nothing to do with those of us who preach it. 
which is interesting because we're talking about Peter and Apollos and Paul here. You know, if it were me and I had the opportunity to sit with Peter, I would have jumped at that. To ask him, you know, Peter, what was it like to walk on water? What was it like to walk with Christ? It had to have been amazing. Or even Paul. I mean, there are questions I have for Paul. Apollos is probably the least well-known, and it is Luke who is going to tell us who Apollos was. Luke will tell us that Apollos was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. I imagine with Paulus, what you're picturing is the best preacher you have ever heard. I imagine he was phenomenal to listen to. But Paul's point is this. We have to be careful not to magnify the messenger. And in so doing, miss the message. The message is the cross of Christ. Verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. I want to pause here for a moment. Paul is saying, look around the church, and by the standards of this world, is this what success looks like? How many of you are wise or are wealthy or are in positions of power? 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
Paul is saying that there are two types of wisdom, two types of power. There is the wisdom and the power that is found in the world, and then there is this wisdom and power that is found in God and God only. Think about someone who you would consider is wise. Paul is saying there are these certain people who when they speak, it seems like everyone is listening. It seems like every word that comes out of their mouth has power. And then there are teachers of the law, the scribes, who debate and wrestle with God's word, who seem to have it all memorized. It seems to come so easy to them. And then the philosophers. You know, in seminary, there was this group of students who studied philosophy with a professor that Nick and I really enjoyed. We loved spending time with him. And they would sit at one of the local microbreweries drinking pints and throwing around these names of all the great philosophers. And I thought they were so cool until I spent some time with them. You know, I read Albert Camus in college, and I didn't understand a single word he said. He said, beauty is unbearable, drives us to despair, offering us for a minute the glimpse of an eternity that we should like to stretch out over the whole of time. He read things like that and was like, huh? Where he said, the only real progress lies in learning to be wrong all alone. You know, I think there's a reason why you're supposed to drink beer when you're reading philosophy. I think they go hand in hand. I really do. This is Paul's point. Of all the great philosophers of Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates, I mean, they were just prior to the first century. Of all the great teachers of the law, those who seem so wise, if they all stood before God, the one who created and sustains all things, how would their wisdom stand up? It's the issue that is raised at the end of the book of Job. When Job stands before God, God says to him, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? In comparison to God, where is the wisdom in this world? Do we really think we can compete? Or think about power. You know, just recently, President Trump ordered the execution of the Iranian General Soleimani, which then led to a response from Iran that took out a Ukrainian plane carrying 176 civilians, which led to possibility of war. You know, there always seems to be an escalation when the world is wrestling with power. There always seems to be this increase, this growth. The only place we don't see that is in the cross. There is power and there is wisdom in the cross that go completely against the power and the wisdom of this world. To defeat death, Christ laid down his life. And from the world's perspective, that is foolish. Yet our entire faith rests upon that one fact. You know, we seem so comfortable with the idea of the cross, but I wonder if we actually ever think about it. The cross might make sense to us, 
but do we live our lives rooted in the cross? What I mean about that question is, do we lay down our lives for those around us? Or do we have to be right? Do we have to be in charge and in control? You know, do we live in such a way that we reflect Christ who loved us so much that even when we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, he laid down his life for us? Let's be honest here for a second. Are we willing to set aside ourselves and our desires, our own needs, for someone we don't even like? let alone someone we love? Are we that sacrificial? You know, in the first century and even today, the cross really is foolishness if we come at it from a worldly perspective. As Jesus hung from the cross, we are told that those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Think about this. What God would lay down his life for us? Definitely not any of the gods that they worshiped in Corinth. Today, in a similar way, we make ourselves out to be God. Paul's going to quote from Jeremiah 9.24 when he says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the core of the problem. We make everything about us. I actually want to read for you the full quote from Jeremiah because it's an amazing quote. This is what the Lord said through Jeremiah. He said, not, Do not let the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. Let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight. I don't think Paul in... God, for that matter, has any issue with wisdom or strength or riches as long as we don't boast in them. As long as we put our faith in God and not in ourselves. Wisdom and strength and riches are these idols. There is only one who can save us, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. Neither wisdom nor strength nor power can save us. Salvation comes through the cross, and the cross alone, Paul is saying. Salvation comes through what God has done, not through what we can do. So if you want to boast, then boast in the Lord. Let our words and our witness point others to the one who exercises kindness, gentle, or justice, and righteousness. That's who we should boast in. Okay, that's chapter one. You ready for chapter two? 
No, not really. This is why you can't read an entire letter at once. I feel like we should just order pizza and spend the rest of the day here. It's snowing outside. Who's up for it? (laughs) Okay. Chapter 2. Let's keep reading. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Again, Paul's point, we have to be careful to not magnify the messenger and in so doing, miss the message. There is wisdom and power in the cross, a wisdom and power that comes from God and God alone. Now, I want to make a side comment here. In the beginning of the first chapter, Paul talked about this idea that God confirmed his testimony concerning Christ through the power of his spirit. And in chapter 2, verse 4, he basically says that same thing again. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the spirit's power. We don't have time to unpack this this morning. We don't have time to really get into the idea of the Holy Spirit. And honestly, I don't know that I would be quite ready to do that this morning. But we will come back to this in Paul's letter because Paul is going to talk about the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in the church. It is really important to our faith and to the witness of the church. And it is something that our tradition does not give a lot of attention to. So for now, I want you to just hold on to that and what we're about to read. We will come back to this. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. There's nothing secret here. I know we get this image of mystery, but that mystery is being revealed in Christ Jesus, okay? Continuing on. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgment about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Okay. Again, all I want to say about the Holy Spirit for now is that we have received it. 
And we know this because we call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Without the Spirit, we can't do that. Without the Spirit, the cross is foolishness. That's where I want to leave it for now. Again, if this is something you're wrestling with, if there's something in here that you really, yeah, you're just struggling over, you guys can call me. My number's in the bulletin. Give me a call this week. Um, we'll be coming back to this, all right? Instead, here's what I want you to hold on to. Paul is building an argument against divisions in the church. And everything that Paul is talking about is tied to the difference between the way of wisdom and power as it is expressed in the world and the way wisdom and power are expressed in God. Because there's a significant difference. Following Christ leads us all to the cross. That is where we find victory because that is where Christ found victory. Paul's point is that to mature as Christians, we need to learn to let go of the ways of this world. And we need to pay more attention to the one who we are following. He's saying, listen, it's not about me. It's not about Apollos. It's not about Peter. I need you to grow up. It's only and ever about Christ. That's where he is taking us. In chapter 3, verse 1, he's going to begin this next section. And he's going to say this, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. You are infants. The problem is chapters 1 and through 4, again, are all one argument, and it's against this division in the church. So we're going to have to hold on to that till next week, where we pick it up and we continue to run through his argument. Paul's saying, grow up. I need you to think differently about the way you're living. Let us pray. Lord, this letter that Paul wrote, there is so much in it. There is so much to unpack and to lead us into who you are. So I pray that as we go through it over these next several weeks, that you would help us keep in mind those things that you really, really want us to hold on to. Father, we gather to give praise to you. So Lord, teach us what that actually looks like. To you and you alone, we give all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. Please stand if you're able as we continue in worship.